right, so we are going to be reading the end of chapter 15 of the book of Mark. We are going to be reading from verse 21 till the end. And this is uh, a teaching that will be concerning and titled, The Sacrifice and Burial of the Son of God. So as you turn there, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the breath of life. We thank you for sufficient health. We thank you for the fellowship that we have among uh, Christians in the uh, Maricopa Springs and with uh, all true believers all around the earth. We thank you for the, the Holy Scriptures and for the text of Mark 15 that we are studying today. We uh, pray that you may help us to to uh, meditate afresh on the uh, sacrifice of your son. And um, I pray that if anyone today is not yet a Christian, they would become a Christian, be born again, even today. And I pray that you, we would be also able, as time, as time allows, to share our brief testimonies, to encourage one another, and uh, to give you praise. Amen. All right, so we are going to go through the passage, Mark 15, 21 through the end, verse by verse. And um, the main message is really to submit to Jesus, to, to repent and believe. We don't want to study this passage and then miss the whole point that he died, Christ died for our sins so that we might be saved. And uh, we want to praise him as well. So perhaps we'll be having a, a few minutes for you to, to share your testimony. The idea when we share our testimony, by the way, is to have um, Christ exalted. Uh, oftentimes when people share the testimony, they spend all their time talking about themselves and their life. There's little said about Jesus, little said about sin, if anything. And that's not what a testimony is. A testimony is, I am a sinner, I recognize so in such and such a circumstance without the details that would be uh, unhelpful. And Jesus saved me and praise be to him. So perhaps you'll be able to share some of that. You can think about it as we go through. Hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for that. But we will start in verse 20 for context. So verse 20 and following read, and when they had mocked him, and I'll pause here. I'll pause here because uh, there's one thing that um, I think we often forget is how badly mistreated Jesus really was. Just as we read this, just just think about it. Those are not just words on a piece of paper; they reflect actions. And just think about how horrible Jesus was treated. So next time we suffer in some shape, some way, shape, or form. Uh, like the book of the one book of the Bible says, we have not suffered yet uh, to the point of blood. So it says, verse 20, Mark 15, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, 
the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also revived him. So this is the time when Jesus is led to be crucified. And so as we read in verse 21, we have a very interesting note that is mentioned by Mark. It says that someone is compelled to carry the cross. So at the time of the Roman, Roman occupation, the Jews were oftentimes compelled to do things for the Romans. So there might be a Roman who was tired of his army load and he would grab a Jew and say, you know, you carry my backpack, you follow me. And so he would be following the Roman with his army load for a mile. And Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, if you are told to go one mile, you go the extra mile. So you have this testimony. And at the time, the people who were going to be executed, they um, typically were carrying their cross until the end. So here there is this uh, gentleman by the name of Simon of Cyrene. He's compelled, uh, just out of the blue, he is uh, coming. We will talk more about him uh, as, um, as we go. You will see it's fascinating. So he's coming, he's on a trip. Uh, he's actually going to celebrate the feast with everyone else in Jerusalem, and he's compelled to carry the cross. And so uh, Simon of Cyrene, carried the cross of Christ. So Cyrene, and I have a, a few uh, slides I thought I would show. I don't do that very often, but I, I thought it would be helpful today, so uh, perhaps you will be able to see. <clears throat> so the city of Cyrene, if you can see the, the map, so that's the map of the world. Uh, you have the United States over here, you have South of America, Africa, Europe, and so <clears throat> Cyrene was a city in uh, the northern part of Libya, right uh, next to Egypt, right. So it's uh, it's it's far away from um, it's far away from Israel, and so that, that this is the ruin of the city of Cyrene. So you can see it was uh, one of the biggest cities at the time, uh, one of the big uh, megapolis uh, of the Greeks, and so we have big ruins that uh, testify of the glory of Cyrene in the past, and so it turns out. The trip to go to Jerusalem that uh, Simon of Cyrene made was over a thousand miles. It would take two weeks on foot. Perhaps he was going by ship, but at any rate, it was very long. He would cross the Red Sea. He would cross uh, Egypt. Just quite a quite a trip. So he was going, and then eventually he carried the cross of Christ. Yes? Question? Yeah. So how does show that they know where he where, where he's from. Um, because for me it's like there's two explanations. Either like it's the it's the duration of God because they're both very close to the Bible, so he knows where everyone's from. <laughs> or he became close to uh, yep. the disciples and then they knew where he's from. Because they just picked him out of the, the crowd, right? So Correct. Exactly. So I'm gonna make the case that he became a Christian. And uh, you can see it's not any Simon. It's not Simon the disciple. It's not any Simon. It's Simon of Cyrene. 
and not any Simon of Cyrene. It's Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so what does that imply? That implies that the people who were reading Mark's uh, writing, they knew, oh, Rufus, oh yeah, I know this guy. He goes to my church, right? And so they, they knew him. Uh, it's very likely that he was actually, um, Rufus was a disciple in, um, in the Church of Rome. If you turn to Romans 16, 13, in Romans 16, 13, uh, the text reads, Great Rufus, chosen of the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Um, and then if you read Acts 11, 20, <clears throat> it's, it talks about um, the uh, early parts of the Christian church. And it says, Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to teach and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So we see that there is a person whose name is Rufus, who is addressed as a dear brother, chosen of the Lord, probably well known for his service. And then uh, Simon of Cyrene is the father of a person named Rufus. So it's uh, the people who study the context of different uh, gospel um, writings and uh, epistles, they believe that uh, Mark was writing from Rome and he knew the Christians there. And most likely the Simon of Cyrene was, a, was a, the father of Christians who also were in Rome. And uh, so what we have here is fascinating. So we are going to read that uh, Jesus is crucified and there is an inscription, King of the Jews. So you picture this man. He's coming from a thousand miles away. And it takes a long time. It's very dangerous. It, it's hot. It's... It's hard. You can't just stop by, get gas, and go to the grocery shopping, get some water. You know, it's hard. It's hard to travel. And so he's traveling, and then he is going to celebrate the Passover. It's just a, a holy pilgrimage. He's probably not doing that every year, so it's expensive. So he goes a special time. Maybe he has his family members. We don't know about the details. But lo and behold, he arrives, and then you have hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at the time. And uh, so most likely... He is outside of the city because he couldn't just get lodging. He couldn't get uh, um, inside the city. So he's coming and then he's grabbed and you carry the cross of this criminal. He doesn't know him. He has no idea. So he's carrying the cross of Christ and then he arrives at the crucifixion scene and he sees the king of the Jews. And we are going to see different prophecies from the Bible that are fulfilled. He is a devout Jew. He comes and he sees the garments being divided. He sees this and that. And he becomes, eventually, he becomes a Christian. He becomes a Christian. And not just him. His whole family. We see his, his wife. Uh, again, it's very likely, so I'm, I'm going to make that assumption going forward. And his children, they come to serve the Lord to the point where at some point the Christian church in Antioch where the first, for the first time Christians were called Christians. They are helped by people coming from Cyrene who teach. And at the time they were, there was racism. The Jews didn't want to talk to the Gentiles. They didn't want to go outside of Jerusalem anyway, certainly not to Samaria. But here it says the people from Cyrene and Cyprus, they came and they preached the gospel to people like you and me, to the Greeks. They did. And so we see here... The marvelous providence of God. 
that in little things that you and I, you know, we have no clue. I'm just going there. I'm just traveling. I'm doing this. And God, He may have something in store to save you, just like to save, save you someone else, just like He saved Simon of Cyrene. It's just amazing. He was just uh, awestruck with the King that He was waiting, the Messiah, just before His very eyes. The Messiah is crucified, the King of the Jews. And then, who knows, perhaps... Just like you and I, we are going to read. Maybe he, he lingered around trying to find out what this was all about. And then he saw all the things we're going to see. And even the centurion saying, this was the Son of God. And he became a Christian. And his kids too. So when we become Christians, or our family members, things happen. You don't know how much blessing God can spill over to your family. So we have to be faithful and have to just praise God for His mighty providence to save people. And then also just see how He must have been uh, uh, touched, uh, understanding what happened, that He was able to share in the suffering of His Lord, carrying the cross, right? And just a beautiful, and when I was studying this, I was like, wow, I already have three pages, just the first verse. I'm never going to go through this text, you know? But anyways, this verse is too beautiful, so I hope you really get to appreciate how marvelous this uh, piece of history really is. It's not just any Simon, it's Simon of Cyrene. What a, what a blessed uh, verse. Verse 22. It, Jesus is, is brought to the place called Golgotha. That means the place of skull. So there are two likely reasons for which this place was called so. By the way, some verses in other gospel accounts uh, say Calvary because that's the Latin for skull. So that's why some churches, you know, they emphasize Calvary, like Calvary Church and so on. So <coughs> why the place of skull? Uh, two options. One is that because people executed all the times, so it would be a place of death. So they named it such uh, in such a way. Or it would be possibly because there was a, some kind of a hill, although the Bible doesn't give any, any detail about that. So we don't know, but perhaps it was in uh, on a hill so that people would see from afar uh, the the people being crucified, and this hill may have been shaped in a skull uh, form. <coughs> uh, so it may have had this, uh, you know. Sometimes you drive around, you see a mountain, and it looks like something. So maybe that was the case with this place. Uh, we don't know for sure. There are different places that are uh, believed to be uh, the crucifixion crucifixion site, but we we don't know for sure. However, what's interesting and sure is that it was outside of the city gates. And the Bible says much about the fact that um, Jesus was to be crucified outside of the city gates. So please turn with me to Hebrews 13. And uh, if someone wants to volunteer to read verse uh, 11 through 13. Actually, 11 through 14, I believe. So Hebrews 13. Verse 11, <clears throat> and please pay attention to the comments that are made about the fact that it was outside the camp, outside the city. Okay, Jonah. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. 
that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. <coughs> Thank you. <coughs> so, it's uh, common throughout the Bible to see that impurity was outside the camp or the city. So we see many things, actually quite surprising ones as well. In Leviticus 14, we read that unclean stones were cast out of the city. For example, if there was a leper or a disease, they were cast out of the city. People were supposed to go outside of the city to relieve themselves, so that's interesting. Uh, in Leviticus 4, the carcasses of animals after sacrifices were discarded outside of the camp. Numbers 5, ceremonially unclean people, so that would be people who touched a dead person, people who did something that was considered unclean, they were supposed to be outside of the city. And then in Numbers 15, 32 through 36, it says that people who disobeyed the law and were to be executed, they were executed outside the camp. So it's just uh, very interesting. And then there is this quote from uh, um, an evangelical magazine online. It says this, quote, Even today, Jews are buried outside Jerusalem. I didn't know that. One of the most striking sights, as you look away from the city, is the vast Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives. There, just outside the city, up to a quarter of a million Jews are buried, with some graves dating back to the biblical period. Wow, it's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So you see the picture, the animals that were just, uh, you know, the scapegoats outside of the cities, sent to the desert, the criminals, anything unclean. It was, was, uh, it was such that uh, God would walk into the city, the camp, because it was clean. And when it was to the point where it was unclean, well, God judged Israel and they were, um, they were deported. And so we see that uh, Jesus suffered outside the gate to sanctify the people through his own blood, verse 12. And the key takeaway is that um, Jesus is taking on himself the impurity of uh, the people, that is us, and uh, he takes the wrath of God on himself instead of us suffering. So let me pause here and let's ask the, the younger ones among us. So why did Jesus die? Yes. To save us from our sins. To save us from our sins. Uh, why do we need to be saved from our sins? Yes. Because we are sinners. And why is that such a big deal? Who can read uh, Romans 6.23 <coughs> for us, please? And 24. Um, 23, you said? Yeah, 23 and 24. I don't have you 24. There's no 24. Okay, just read 23 then, please. <laughs> For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. So, what do we deserve when we sin? What is the comparison given in that verse? Eternal life. Okay, so but when I get death because I sinned, uh, how can you compare that to something in real life? 
according to the verse? It's like a wage. So I go to work, I create some value, some work for my employer, and as a result, he owes me a salary, right? So the text says that if we sin, our wage is death. So that's what we, we should be receiving as a, as a due. But uh, so that's, that's death. What kind of death? Well, let's read on. So it's compared to life, Donair said. What kind of life? Eternal life. So that must mean that the other part is eternal death. And uh, is it a due? Just like a wage for the eternal life? It's a free gift. So when we sin, what we deserve to get and we will get it is, is death. And uh, if we want to be spared, then Jesus died for our sins and we can be forgiven as a free gift. So we'll talk more about, about that. Uh, let me read another quote that I found very, very well said about uh, Jesus dying outside of the city. We are looking for a better city still to come, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is completely pure, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That's Revelation 21 2, uh, implied from there. It's only because Jesus bore our sins outside the city that we can go to that, to that city. And uh, the passage also says that uh, we should go, therefore, outside the camp to bear the reproach that he endured in Hebrews 13, 13. So it just in, in just in this little comment, it was in Golgotha, we see all of that. Wow, just, just one verse, you can have an entire sermon on that. What does it mean to go outside of the camp uh, to bear the reproach of Jesus? Who, who can flesh this out for us? What I think, uh, sorry to add another layer here, I think you also have an element of man was cast out of the garden for his sin, right? So there's, there's this theme that weaves its way through scripture. Um, but the question is, do we want to associate with ourselves with the city of man where sin reigns and rebellion defines that city, or the rule of Christ who has atoned for our sins by going outside of the camp. Is that kind of what you're getting at Yeah. with your questions? Jesus suffered. He was, he was insulted. He was uh, blasphemed. It's just horrible things. And he did that for us outside the camp. So we can just stay within our own selves, our own church, and uh, our own uh, comfort. And, uh, and we can say, you know, I'm not going there. And so, some people, you know, they create monasteries or they create... Uh, Amish camps and they say I'm not going to see these people we're having a pure uh, community here but Jesus came out and he died as an unclean person for us to redeem us and so there we are told therefore we should go out we should go out as well we should reach out to people we should endure the suffering that he endured we shouldn't be just trying to be um, you know, if you don't say anything about Christ uh, outside, uh, perhaps in your workplace at the proper time, or uh, to strangers or people who, you know, you're never going to be, um, they're never going to mock you they, about uh, your faith necessarily, uh, you know. You, you see, but if you bring this up, then things will happen. And people, they don't want to have any conflict. They, uh, they would prefer to have people die in their sins and say nothing rather than share the gospel. We don't want to do that, right? So beautiful, 
and inferences in the in just that passage based on Hebrews 13. Verse 23. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So this drink was probably a narcotic that was uh, aimed at uh, making the pain less uh, severe. And um, in uh, Proverbs 31.6, there is a, a statement that probably created this tradition from the Jews. And so it says, give a strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. So maybe they did that because of that proverb. Um, we, we don't know for sure. We see from the other gospel accounts that Jesus tasted it actually, and when he saw what it was, he refused. So he didn't want to have any alcohol or narcotic, you know, dull his senses, and um, he wanted to be in full control of his mental capabilities to face the next uh, grueling hours and also to minister to the dying thief who later repented. We see that in a Luke 23. So we proceed now with the verses 23 through 32. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them. Yes. Uh, maybe I was totally wrong, but I thought that was that had to do with the first one. Jesus says, who uh, of you, if, as, if you shall ask you for water, you will give him uh, vinegar or something like that and ask for a fish would give him a snake so I thought that was a kind of form of mockery or something like that so that no I don't it. think that's the case it's more like a fulfillment of one of the messianic prophecies in the Psalms where it says they offered him um, um, gall yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's uh, it's not related to this I don't think yeah. so 23 and following and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And you remember we read that earlier. They were reviving him, and they were taunting him all the way to the end. So it's, uh, it's just painful to read this. Just just reading this, you can, you can read it and you can just come over the words, you know, just see what it means. It's horrible what they did. I mean, can you imagine, even when someone is executed lawfully, uh, let's say in one of the states where there's capital punishment, that people would act like that? Just this is scandalous. You don't do that. And those are religious people. This is like this, they have no excuse. It's, it's the bottom. So they tempt him to make a miracle till the very end. If you just do one more miracle, we will believe. Oh, really? And then he was raised from the dead, and they, they didn't believe. So you will have people like that today. You have plenty of people like that. They will say, just one miracle. If I have one miracle, if God answers this, if I have a sign, then I'll believe. But the Bible says that <coughs> people don't need a miracle to believe. They need to repent when they read the Bible and they hear the scriptures or the gospel. And because they don't, uh, we are told that even a miracle of someone raised from the dead would not do. So they, they, just, um, they are just making excuses. They are shamefully mistreating their own Messiah until the very end. But what's happening is that uh, many prophecies 
of Moses and Isaiah and others all being fulfilled. So I'm really passionate about that theme. It's a little bit of an apologetic theme. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go for that for a few minutes. So in Psalm 22, 18, it says, and the Psalms I'm quoting, they are called Messianic Psalms. They often have what's called a double um, reference. So they were referring to David sometimes, but it was uh, anticipating the Messiah. Sometimes it's just the Messiah. Um, so that's why I'm quoting those, um, those uh, prophecies because it's compelling when you look at all of them as a whole and you look at Psalm 22, for example, as a whole, or Psalm 69 and so on. You see clearly this is Jesus there. Same for Isaiah 53. So in, in Psalm 22, 18, it says, they divided my garments among them and then they cast lots. Basically, it's like dice. They say, okay, we have two pieces here. You, you want this one, so they cast a lot and okay, so you get this one because there, there was one piece that was more valuable or something to that effect. <coughs> and that was a prophecy. And you see it happening just in the text. It happened. Then the, the Bible says that he was going to be crucified, the Messiah, between lawbreakers. And in Isaiah 53, it says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What happened in the crucifixion account, that's not mentioned in what we're reading today, that accounts for this latter part of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12. He made intercession for the transgressors. Who knows? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Yeah. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. That's in um, Luke 23:34. Then the Messiah cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, uh, 1a, the beginning. We'll talk about why he said that afterwards. Jesus is thirsty. It says he was going to be thirsty in Psalm 69. And then, um, actually, in the account of uh, the crucifixion from John, in John 19, 28, it says this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And so sometimes people say, well, Jesus fulfilled some prophecies, but that's because... You know, that's because he wanted to. And to that I reply, you do not control the way you die. You do not control the way you are born. You don't control your family. You don't control the events of your life for the most part. And you're not going to remember to pronounce one thing when you're about to die in a horrible way. So Jesus was born in all the, the genealogies and the tribes and the city, all the details that the Old Testament mentioned. The things that happened in his life, many of which were not in his control, they were all fulfilling prophecies. And right there, he is dying and he is fulfilling the prophecies to the detail. In fact, here, he does say it on purpose, but still, the point is, um, you would not do that if you were just a mere human being dying. He is doing this because he is the Messiah and he is in full control till the end. We will even talk about well, why he died that early. The one where it says, I thirst, uh, my, thirst my, um, my throat is dry, it's in uh, Psalm 69.3. <coughs> Psalm 69.3. Then the bitter drink, uh, as we discussed earlier, that's Psalm 69.21. Uh, they gave me vinegar to drink or gall for food. The crowd staring at the Messiah, Psalm 22.17. 
I can, I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me. And in Matthew 27, 36, it says that they kept watching over him there. The Messiah crucified, 22, 16. They pierced, Psalm 22, 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. And we learned that they crucified him. Do you know how many prophecies concern Christ in the Bible, approximately? I haven't counted myself, so I'm going to rely on some, uh, some people who did the, the counting. So conservatively, people say 300, but other people who have perhaps studied more, they say up to 456. So there is a gentleman by the name of uh, Peter Stoner. He's the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy uh, in, in a college in the US. And he's very good at statistics. And he wrote a book that's called Science Speaks. And so in, in this book, he took 48 prophecies of Jesus. Remember, there are 400 plus, probably. And uh, he calculated the probability that anybody could do that. And um, you know, this, those are estimates, but you can do this, right? You can calculate how many people at the time, how many cities, what's the likelihood of this happening at the same time as that. You can have some estimates, right? And uh, he came to the following. For Jesus to be the Messiah, and by fulfilling those 48 prophecies, it's 10 to the power 157. So what does it mean, 10 to the power 157? It means 10, and then you write 157 zeros. Uh, so that's basically no chance in the world. And that's not even all the prophecies. So there's no one on earth that can fulfill all the prophecies and be the Messiah, except the real Messiah, who is the God-man, who can control all of history and actually fulfill this. So it's hard to picture the zeros. So I have uh, this uh, little analogy. Imagine the state of Texas. And imagine silver coins, or just coins. And imagine that the whole state is covered uh, with a couple, two feet of coins. See, Texas is big. Eh? Everything is bigger in Texas. It's really big. So it's a lot of coins. If you were to just try to get one at the bottom of the floor, you have to get your whole hand and then get it from the bottom. It's a lot of coins. Imagine the whole state of Texas is covered with those, uh, those coins. And there is only one, there's only one that's marked with a, a, a particular science. That's the special coin. One out of the trillions in all the state of Texas. So if you only took eight prophecies of uh, Jesus, of born in Bethlehem, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, you can't control that. Betrayed by a friend, you cannot control that, right? You take just eight. You are blindfolded now. You can go anywhere in Texas. Okay, you can go anywhere in Texas. You blindfolded. You just, you have to get this one coin. If you can grab the coin by chance, you think, "Haha, I got it." That's impossible, right? The state of Texas is so huge. Let's say you could do it. Now, if you were to actually fulfill the 400 plus prophecies, you would have to do that thousands of times in a row, blindfolded, and then. You can claim that it's uh, a matter of uh, uh, something that can happen, that Jesus was the Messiah. It's impossible. So now you can take that same picture. Imagine we go into the sanctuary. 
speak the gymnasium and you put coins everywhere to the roof, there's just one coin and you have to find it. It's impossible, right? And then you are blindfolded and you have to do it several times in a row and every time I hide it in a different place. Can you do that? No. No way. But Jesus, he fulfilled all the prophecies. So, the very facts of scripture, the prophecies fulfilled, the mighty love of God for sinners, all the things we see in the Bible, it is factual, reasonable fact, reasonable reasons for you to believe and become a Christian. Because if you just think about it and you just don't try to make excuses, but you just look at it, no one can do this. You must be who you claim to be. And Jesus is the Son of God. He is the God-man. He fulfilled all the prophecies. And He is my Savior. I hope He is your Savior too. So we're going to read more about that. When it comes to verse 33, we read about the time when Jesus died. When the sixth hour, hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of uh, Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, that is Jesus, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So let me ask you a few questions. And then I'll tell you a few things about the crucifixion timeline. So why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And let me whisper some of the things that unbelievers say. Well, see, he lost faith. He said, why have you forsaken me when he was dying? So I'm asking you, why did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, the scripture must be fulfilled. It's Psalm 22, 1. That's correct. Something else. Because it's not just said to be said. It's said because it's true. Right? Because he was really forsaken. Why was he really forsaken? I think there's a verse in Romans um, that says um, that he knew no sin became sin for us. So he became sin and God Yes, let's look at that. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Any one of you want to read it? 2 Corinthians 5.21.
So it says for for our sake he made him to be sin, and we are sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's God who makes him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, so that we Christians might become the righteousness of God or, or righteous in him. So Jesus was treated as a sinner, bearing all the sin of God's people. And do you think that would be good reason for God to forsake him? That's not a trick question. <laughs> yes. So God cannot stand sin. In heaven, there is no sin. So, you know, why can't I go to heaven as a non-believer? Well, because if I go to heaven, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to make heaven, which is pure with God and just purity, I'm going to make heaven dirty, so to speak. I'm going to bring my sin in myself. And therefore, I have no place. I cannot go. I must be sinless. But how can I become sinless? Someone must die for my sins. So Jesus bore all my sins. And now, so this is how it works. So that's me. We'll make it simple, drawing-wise. That's Jesus. <coughs> so I have, I have this uh, black, dirty cloak. That's uh, my sin. If you were to picture it, I would just go like that. And then Jesus was perfect his whole life. It's called the great exchange. Double <coughs> imputation. That's what I'm about to explain. So Jesus lived the perfect life he never sinned. At the cross, two things happened. My dirty coat and everyone else who is an elect was placed on him. And he gave me his righteousness. It's like in the book of Zechariah. There is a... Joshua and he is before God and he's dirty he has clothes imagine with mud and then there's Satan saying look you can't have this one how dirty is he so he's accusing but then there's Jesus who comes and then he says you remove those clothes and you give him a right hope a right robe so Jesus he took on all my sin on him and he was treated like I should have, which would be forsaken, forever in hell, without hope and without God in the world and then in hell. And in his perfect life, he gave it to me. So then what happens? What happens is that when Jesus was on the cross, what did, Jesus, what did God see? He saw me, he saw you, he saw all our sins, and therefore he couldn't stand to be with Jesus, and he was forsaken. He was forsaken, for real. And the book of Hebrews says, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, to the Christians. So if you're a Christian, God says, I'm never going to forsake you. You cannot lose your salvation. I'm never going to forsake you. In Jeremiah 32, 40, it says, I make a new covenant with them. And I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will never depart from me. Mark it down. Jeremiah 32, 40. 
Jesus said, this is my blood that I pour out, the blood of the new covenant. And on the cross, he gives us his righteousness. And then God says, I will never forsake you. Because he was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. And then when, Jesus, when God looks at me, what does he see? Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees Jesus. So if you do not believe in Jesus, when you are going to be judged by God, you will see your sin and you will be forsaken in hell forever. You will have no hope. But if you believe in Jesus, He will see Christ in you and you will be saved. That's the good news. So that's why Jesus didn't come, by the way, at age 33 and die right away. He lived 33 years of a perfect life. So he had not only the um, decision to bear all our sins, but he also gave us, he gave us his righteousness. Can I throw another element in here too, which that was all phenomenal, thank you. Um, all, all throughout the Old Testament, there is a, a very explicit promise that God saves those who call on him. Right? So, for example, 80, Psalm 86. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. So this is really fascinating because Jesus cried out and God did what is contrary to his nature, essentially. That's probably not the best way to say it. So don't go easy on me theologically here. What I'm saying is Christ cried out to God and God said no. So that when we cry out to God, he can say yes, right? Because Christ was forsaken. We are not. Mm -hmm. And that, that's essentially what you were saying. But connected to this is this idea like, how could Jesus cry out to God and not be heard when the promise is all through the Old Testament that God hears those who cry out to him? And the reason is because he was forsaken in our place as those who have no right to call out to God. Thanks for sharing. So quick timeline of the crucifixion, and I have plenty of other questions, but we are running out of time, so we'll do what we can. So the timeline, the reason I bring this up is because the text keeps saying the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, what does that mean? So Jesus spent a sleepless night, a sleepless night, praying for us, praying for himself, you remember? And then he was arrested and he stood on trial before Pilate at 6 a.m. So that's, the, uh, that's one of the time indicators. Then at 9 a.m., the third hour, uh, he was crucified, that's Mark 15, 25. And then at the sixth hour, darkness came over the land, that's noon. And at 3 p.m., he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we will see shortly, a few moments later, he died. So he spent six hours on the cross. The midpoint is when the darkness covers the whole land. So six hours. Typically, according to different uh, sources, including the National Institute of Health, uh, in a historical article, people who were crucified could uh, stay alive for up to four days. So just after six hours, Jesus is no longer alive. So here's a question for you. He died 
And then the centurion says, Surely this man was the son of God. Oh, other translation, other accounts say he was a righteous man. Maybe he said both. Um, why did he say that? Why? Why after the death of Jesus, immediately the centurion, one of the executioners, realizes, wow, this was the son of God. Why would you react like that? Do you know? What's that? All right, so the curtain tore, but I don't think he knew because it was far away, right? But we'll talk about that right after. Just recently, there was a convicted murderer in, I think it was Florida, who was executed. And you know what his, you know what his last words were? Basically, screw all of you, right? So here's a man who is innocent. And instead of cursing the people, standing there mocking him, jeering at him, he says nothing to curse them. You know, instead he says, Father, forgive them. So just his response, I think, is, is one of the elements. Amen. If that man knew scripture, he would have realized, like, these things are happening. He might have realized some of them were happening. Yeah, I doubt he was, but it perhaps it's, that's, that's not impossible. I mean, there were people like um, Cornelius. Uh, right, and so it, it's not impossible, but uh, but the text says because of the way Jesus died. So there is something about the way Jesus died that made him stood out, just like Pastor Grady just said, compared to the, all the other folks who usually died in crucifixions, who were horrible. So what we see is that Jesus, just before he died, he had two people on his right and on his left. There were there were two in total, and they were both. The text that we read said they were just joining the crowd, just mocking Jesus, saying, you know, save yourself. They were mocking him. But one of them repented. And uh, you know what he said? He said this. He said to the other one who was insulting him, he said, stop, stop saying this. This man is innocent. So this man, and he said, you and I, we're here because we deserve it, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the person who was a thief, Caleb, the person who was a thief who got saved, he recognized he was a sinner. He fully deserved where he, the punishment he was having. Then he recognized Jesus was innocent. And then he said what? Remember me in your kingdom. Lord. So he recognized Jesus is the king. He is Lord, he is master. He has a kingdom. And he is not going to be ending with what's happening right now. And he had faith in the next life. And he said, help me. And he didn't even claim it. He just said, please remember me. Remember me. Just remember me. He doesn't even say, right, he's just, he's really humble at that time, asking for mercy. So he recognizes he's a sinner. You have to. Otherwise, there's no great exchange. He recognizes Jesus is innocent. He recognizes Jesus is Lord and King. And he calls upon him. And what does Jesus say? Tonight, verily, verily, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, come out of the cross, go get baptized, do a few good deeds, because you're really negative right now, you're not going well, it's not going to go well with your, your uh, performance review. He says, tonight, you're with me in paradise. And then, this, this uh, Jesus, the other thing he does is, he cries out with a loud voice, 
Let's read this. <coughs> Let's read this uh, in Matthew 27, 49 and 50. Matthew 27, 49 and 50. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. I'll wait for you to get there. By the way, they are mocking him because Elijah is supposed to be the precursor or the forerunner of Christ. So they are basically saying, oh, so if you are the real Messiah, you should come after Elijah. So let's see if Elijah is going to come so we can all see you're not the real Messiah. So they did just taunt him all the way to the end. But see verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So you have to realize, Jesus... He's on the cross. He ministers to this dying thief so that he is saved at the very last moment of his life by grace, through faith, by the blood of Christ. And then he has, I mean, imagine a loud voice, like a loud voice. So people are probably shocked. And then he says to the Father, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And then a couple seconds later, He's dead. You know, you don't die when you have enough strength to be like crying that loud and doing all those things. And it's just six hours into the crucifixion and, and, and Jesus is strong. And Jesus is, is healthy, uh, like uh, someone who's been taking care of his body for his whole life. Uh, and, and then he dies that early. The centurion is like, what is this? He died just like that. Like, I cannot, I cannot die like this. You know, they, they prevent people from doing suicide in prison uh, with certain things because without certain things, people cannot die. And so out of the blue, Jesus dies. Just before that, he asked God to take his spirit. He said, I yield my spirit. I commit. And uh, so we see very fascinating truth here. In John 10, 11 and 17 through 19, Jesus had already said something about that. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, verse 17, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, so you're saying, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so you're basically saying that Jesus kind of like chose when at the last minute Yes, and so you remember Adam when he was created and fashioned by God with the dust and the clay of the ground. He was fashioned and he was a body right there on the ground and he was lifeless. And then God breathed the spirit, that is his human spirit, his soul. We are two parts. We are material, immaterial. And he breathed the soul and then he became a living being. And when someone dies, the body is still there, but they are no longer here. And so Jesus says to God the Father, I commit my spirit. And the Father takes the Spirit, and Jesus dies on the spot, just like that. So his life wasn't taken from him. It was not like taken. He, he literally, not, not even just in the process of crucifixion, uh, gave up his life. But literally in the moment of death, that was his decision. That's right. And so you see all the things. All the prophecies are fulfilled. I thirst so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Everything, even the things that happen after his death, they pierce my side. They put him in a, in a rich man's tomb. And then he said, he said, you know, he said, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, he, and then he dies. And then the centurion cannot but conclude, this is the Son of God. And I hope you conclude the same. 
Um, and it's 9.46 and we have still many verses to go. <laughs> you want to continue next week? You can. Uh, you let me know. Okay, let's continue next week. I'm just halfway through my text. So, but since we have we have a couple minutes, then um, any one of you want to share in like one minute because of the kids and the other adults around here, share how you became aware of your sin and Jesus saved you, so you can encourage others. Someone. Thanks for sharing. Let me give you an example of, of how you could share specifically about how you became a Christian. So when I was 20 years old, I realized I was a slave of sin. There were many things I couldn't stop doing. And I was trying to repent, and I just couldn't repent. I didn't have the strength, and I couldn't do it. So I just uh, asked uh, my mom, what should I do? And she told me, just pray to Jesus, ask him to help you and save you. And at the time, I thought Jesus was going to be my Lord because I wanted him to decide for my life, but I did not understand I needed to be saved. I couldn't stop from uh, doing the things he hates without his help, and I couldn't be, re couldn't be forgiven of my sins without him. But then I realized you just have to come to Jesus, believe that he died for your sins, and humbly pray. And I was crying, and I prayed to God, and then... He changed my life. I was uh, forgiven. I had peace, joy, and by the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection life, I have been following him, and, and he has been sanctifying me ever since. So I realized I was a sinner. I called on Jesus, and he saved me. Praise be to him. Someone else, a brief testimony. Um, I mean... I went to uh, Catholic school growing up, and um, I believed, you know, there was a Jesus and everything, but um, it wasn't until in 
and you kind of said that you needed art. And at that point that I realized that I had never made, that decision was always made for me throughout things that had happened. And I had never actually made that decision. And at that point, that's when I think it happened. So I wanted to pass it. Great. Yeah. Praise God. So, someone else, maybe. Okay, Jonah, and probably end up with you. So I mean, I never, I never, uh, I didn't. I mean, I grew up, and my dad said, my dad always said that, yeah, you know, we were Christians, such. We never went to church. He never talked about it to us. We never read the Bible. Never anything. It was a very secular life. But I mean, throughout my whole life, I like kind of like I might just believe there was God, but I didn't know Christ at all. I didn't trust in Him or anything. Um, just, just, just a secular lifestyle, and then, um, and when I was about 15 or 16, my dad decided one of the times just for a week and a half to quote the Bible and read the Gospel of Matthew, and that's all it took. Um, that's all it took, and after that, my brother also too, just like me, we started reading, started just reading scripture by ourselves, and um, going through the Gospels and all the New Testament, and it took about I think almost a year. Um, you know, not much victory in my life. It was not much growth. It was just, you know, a lot of the scripture reading and stuff. And then I came across um, the guy Ray Comfort, who's evangelist, who's this is the study Bible is from. And um, I saw one of his videos and I read one of his books and I actually, for the first time, fully understood the gospel and like truly the weight of my sin. And I think that's around there when I knew that I had to repent and such. And then that's Amen. what was happened. Thanks for sharing. Yes, and uh, all in all, um, it's all because we read the Bible, we heard the Bible, someone shared the gospel, and sometime, at some point, by the Holy Spirit, the seed that was placed in our heart um, caused us to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, praise God. Then let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your son Jesus who, who uh, yielded his life as an atonement for sins. We thank you for this beautiful text and uh, all the sufferings that Jesus endured for us. And we, uh, we thank you for the beautiful story of Simon of Cyrene and help us to be uh, just like uh, he and his children were, sharing the gospel and the good news everywhere we go. Amen.